to Altered Mobility, where we talk about the history of publicly available transportation, public spaces, the way we get around, and what surrounds us in the public sphere. And I'm your host, Cheryl Gross-Glazer, on this lovely winter morning, drinking my coffee. And I will tell you, I'm in my closet. This is my recording studio. It's pretty messy. I've got the laundry next to me. I'm sitting on top of a pillow that's on top of some discarded clothes that haven't made their way to the basement pile. And I've got shoes that haven't been put away, uh, pillows that need covering. Uh, It's a mess. It's a mess, but it creates a lot of cushioning for this podcast. So there you go. Okay, so let's get started. We are on episode number two of two uh, on the history of Moynihan Train Hall, or as most people call it, Moynihan Station. The who, where, and what of the grand retrofitting of an old post office facility. And we're going to continue what we did in our first Moynihan Train Hall episode, which is we're going to have little smatherings of moments of equity throughout the episode. Uh, using some quotes. So, okay, we're beginning this episode in the summer of 1997. Uh, We still have Bill Clinton in the White House. We have Moynihan in the Senate. Um, And we have no construction begun on the train station or the train hall that was first planned for a 1999 completion. Obviously, that 1999 uh, date not to be kept. Okay. So, according to the New York Times, however, we are finally ready to move forward. We have the Pennsylvania Station Redevelopment Corporation. It's now a three-year-old state agency charged with overseeing the project, according to the Times, to review architectural proposals. Where we're at toward finally uh, fully funding the project is, and I'll quote from an August 1997 article here, the city, state, and federal governments are expected to cover $200 million of the total cost, with a private developer providing the other $115 million, 20% of which would be eligible, continuing my tendency to mispronounce, but going on with the quote, 20% of which would be eligible for a historic preservation tax credit. Each level of government has two representatives on the board of the Redevelopment Corporation. The president is Alexandros E. Washburn, an architect who was formerly public works advisor to Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, unquote. So you see how Moynihan is staying close and perhaps having a protege who is heading up this this project. A few months later, as we change the calendar to 1998, the situation looks promising. The deal is to have the post office and the new station under one roof in this Farley Old General Post Office building, but, and I say that in capital letters, B-U-T, there is no mention at this point of the Long Island Railroad link to Grand Central. I remember that had been so important to the previous senator, Senator D'Amato, but he's no longer in. We have Senator Schumer. 
Um, so the, in addition, obviously, to the senior senator, Daniel Patrick Moynihan at this point. Um, the compromise deal was pretty much set to move forward, uh, but a compromise means that not everyone was ecstatic. And I am going to stop here for a moment to check something. Sorry about that. I had a little brain freeze and I just had to check one uh, pertinent fact. Okay. All right. So we're now changing the calendar to 1998. The situation looks promising. This compromise deal is pretty much set to move forward. Again, there's lots of players here. And as Moynihan had said, um, it's like uh, sharks in the water circling the dolphin, right? Any, any one player really can make this not happen. So it's a very delicate balance. Lots of egos involved. Um, the next quote from the New York Times shows just how much email and other technology uh, changed the picture very, you know, really pretty soon after uh, 1998. The, the U.S. Postal Service is unhappy. It, for some reason, it doesn't want to give up this uh, part of the Farley building, even though there's lots of space that's unused, and it's, it's kind of crazy. Okay, so uh, quoting from the Times... Advocates of the new station see Farley as a nearly empty and obsolete warehouse, taking up valuable acreage in midtown Manhattan for storage and sorting that could be performed almost anywhere. Postal officials see it as a vital 24-hour-a-day operational hub that has contributed to improved mail delivery throughout Manhattan. So obviously, end quote, so obviously, um, there's two different perspectives here, right? Um, and is it partly a, a power ego thing? It, it kind of looks like that, right? The, new, the post office doesn't want to be seen to be giving up this kind of this gem in midtown Manhattan. That's what, it, that's what the optics are, anyway. The New York Daily News, a newspaper whose most famous headline was in 1975, Ford to New York Drop Dead, that newspaper was unhappy as well. And the paper was looking for a perfect uh, design as well as a, a speedy timeline. I don't know what it's thinking, right? But it's, it's sort of like saying we, we, we deserve, you know, the best. And I quote, Unfortunately, what has emerged is a half-baked idea for half a station. Yes, the 8th Avenue end of the post office would be converted to a train concourse, but over a foot-dragging five years. And, tragically, the inspired plan to recreate the old Penn Station's soaring ticket hall and elegant arcade was lost in the flurry of negotiations with mediator Robert Peck, Federal Commissioner of Buildings. End quote. Are you kidding me? They're disappointed in a five-year timeline? As a New Yorker, I would say, you're lucky if you get anything. And yes, I agree. It's very sad. It's a really sad commentary that these negotiations always seem to 
break down and only be possible at the lowest common denominator level, if they're even possible at all, right? It's new, but it's New York City, and with all the requirements and the partners and the craziness uh, of the reality of the mixture of those two, it, you're lucky if anything gets done. Okay. So when does anything get done on time or with a blank check to do something grandiose with public money? So Central Park, the refurbishing of Central Park or Bryant Park, they're just two examples, right, of big projects, millions of dollars to really update beautiful public spaces. But they were done with private donations. And private donations mean uh, you don't have to have as many players. You don't have as many restrictions necessarily. It's, it's kind of easier. With Penn Station, if you went out on the streets of New York in 1998, you would probably get a pretty good consensus of what people wanted. It's the money. It's the players. It's the egos. Okay, so we're moving on. Another more ambitious project for Moynihan Train Hall and Penn Station was also being floated at this time. So even though we're talking about let's get the money together, it seems like we're still not quite set on the actual plan. But this idea never seemed to get anywhere, maybe because it's too grandiose. It was advocated by a well-connected lawyer who first arrived in Manhattan from Kentucky as a teenager into where? the old, beautiful Penn Station. But despite his connections in the Clinton administration, this man, Philip K. Howard, who was chairman of the Municipal Arts Society in New York, was unable to inspire the spending of even more than the original $315 million, $15 million, or to speed up the process. And by the way, Howard's plan in drawings by Richard Nash Gould Architects would have included a conference center and a ticketing hall as large as Grand Central. Howard was thinking like a 19th century railroad baron, although one who didn't have the money, right? He's, he has those same kind of plans. He wants something big to happen, but unlike one of those railroad barons, he doesn't have the cash. And Moynihan and others are practicing politics as the art of the possible in an age when New York City is is just emerging from years of perceived decline. So why, and then another question that's up, you know, so in addition to these players, there's this political reality uh, when it comes to federal funds. So why should this one city, which in significant ways is so different from the rest of the United States, get such a big share of federal money for one train station, right? That's that's like uh, a big possible talking point to really upend the whole thing. It's a not an easy sell politically at any level of government beyond the city government, even though every day more people use this station than live in some states. And be even though this station is responsible for getting people connected to jobs that means so much, such an outside share, outsized share of the U.S. economy, right? There's, but there's different ways to look at it. So even with the compromise and a realization that a return to an all-out 19th century grandeur, grandeur is not in the offing, there are many rooting for Senator Moynihan and his allies to, to prevail. 
The following is from a Wall Street Journal article in April of 1998, but there's lots of articles and editorials around this time that hark back to the tragedy of the destruction of the original Penn Station, right? You're talking about a lot of people who are players in this who have memories of that station. And I'll quote from that Wall Street Journal article. In a moment, after I get a little more coffee, because I'm thirsty, and I quote, Across the street from one of the most heinous architectural crimes of the 20th century looms a chance for a storybook ending. The crime was the 1963 demolition of Pennsylvania Station, a soaring table, excuse me, a soaring temple of rail transport that novelist Thomas Wolfe lovingly described as, quote, murmurous with the immense and distant sound of time, end quote. The happy ending can be found just across 8th Avenue. It is behind the Corinthian columns of the cavernous general post office, end quote of the Wall Street Journal, quote. Notice that the writer is not calling the post office building the Farley building. It's like 6th Avenue. No one calls it Avenue of the Americas. doesn't matter that it's officially called the Farley building. That's what I love New York about New York. Okay, so we're in the spring of 1998. It looks like we're coming up roses with money and a plan in place, albeit a compromise plan. By summer, the Station Redevelopment Corporation has selected Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill and Parsons, Parsons Brinkerhoff, two prominent firms as the engineering firms to design and build the new station. And we're proceeding along what looks like, you know, at a decent pace so that by New Year's of 1999, we have on the horizon a mix of blue skies and clouds. The New York Times reports that the Postal Service and the Redevelopment Corporation have agreed to share the building. We're ready for the engineers to come in with a firm, detailed plan. The design uh, looks like it's going to include three terraced concourses for the train station that will, and I quote from a January 3, 1999 article by David Dunlap in the Times, and I quote, these three concourses, and I'm going to quote in a second, these three terraced concourses, quote, will cascade down to the train station platforms, some of which will be visible through skylights. The platforms, which already extend westward from the existing station, will be reached by stairway, escalator, or elevator. You'll be actually be able to see the trains as you're waiting, said David M. Childs of Skidmore, Ownings, and Merrill, part of the team redesigning the space in the building. No one, involved, no one involved in the project presumes to say that this concourse will make New Yorkers forget the glory of McKinn, Mead, and White's original, which was torn down in the early 1960s. But they are quick to note that it will share the quality of bringing daylight and visibility down to track level. End quote. So this design was at least temporarily leaving out retail space, which had been planned to pay for part of this grand project. Um, but this was a supposedly a great compromise, with the New York Times referring to uh, Skidmore's uh, 
Marilyn Jordan Taylor, a partner in the firm, for a comparison of, and I quote, the process to solving a three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle, end quote. Now, we all know if you've been to Moynihan Train Hall that you don't have uh, these skylights that look down to train level. Um, so it didn't come to fruition, but we're talking bigger bucks here to have that kind of bright light brought down to track level. By May of 1999, so a few more months later, instead of reports that the project is proceeding, we have reports that there's trouble as far as... Okay, a theme, a theme, you know, that keeps coming back, finding sufficient funding. It turns out that those who had been corralled or whose egos had been persuaded into working together, or at least appearing to do so, were no longer willing to play nice across the aisle or across the divides of uh, city, state, and federal political arenas. So here we are, May of 1999. Uh, we have Senator Moynihan inviting President Clinton to come down, come to town, to come up to New York to town to highlight the project. We have detractors who are willing to sacrifice a good project because it isn't grand enough, and we have Senator Damato, who had been high up in the Senate hierarchy, who's been replaced by now uh, Senator Charles Chuck Schumer. Chuck Schumer, as opposed to Senator D'Amato, is starting out at the bottom of the senatorial ladder. He's not at the head of any influential committees that can help out with this uh, funding jigsaw puzzle. But one thing Senator Schumer did do in 1999, his first year in office, was to begin momentum for naming uh, the train hall or station, depending on which way the project goes, fingers crossed something would happen, after Senator Moynihan. And he introduced a bill that failed to pass. And then we have Mr. Ego, I'll call him, or I'll call him at the time Mr. Ego, because I think he's a kind of a faded picture of what he used to be, uh, then Mayor Giuliani, whose constituents by this point in 1999 are not so excited about him anymore, about six years into his mayoral ten tenure. And remember, this is before 9-11 when he resurrects his reputation and Rudy becomes for a time uh, known as America, America's mayor. It's well before the Trump years when Giuliani, Giuliani's reputation uh, is again changed and changed seemingly forever. So we have, you know, sort of Giuliani toward the end, but not yet uh, looking so good. Then there's the complicating factor that uh, costs are escalating, right? If you know anything about infrastructure projects of any kind, but certainly big ones, uh, they, they tend to take lots of time to get off the ground and costs always go up, sometimes way up. So this is where the grumbling is focused as we turn uh, the calendar into 2000, right? We've now gone through, right, I've been talking about three years since the beginning of this episode, and um, we seem to be kind of 
somewhere on the fence, right? Sometimes teetering backwards, sometimes teetering forward, but still kind of on the fence. And now as we go into the year 2000, the costs are now estimated at a much higher price, $788 million, over twice the early price tag. We have a few plans floating around at this time, one that would have turned part of the post office building into a hotel with views of the station. Think the Blue Jays ballpark in Toronto, where you have a hotel that looks out on the ballpark. Another would have put New Jersey Transit as the main, sta- main tenant of the station instead of Amtrak, but that was, of course, dependent on a plan to expand tunnel capacity under the Hudson River, and that tale we'll return to in a few moments moments. And then we have 9-11 happening just a year later with the terrorist attacks that took place on September 11th, 2001. So you say, why does 9-11 change everything? Well, it changes everything for a few reasons, but the major reason is that the Postal Service's other major Manhattan facility, other than this general post office slash Farley building, was where, I mean, you know the answer, at the old uh, World Trade Center. And it was destroyed along with the rest of uh, those buildings. So... Now, uh, the U.S. Postal Service is in a situation where maybe they do really need this Midtown uh, building. Whether they were talking baloney before or not, who knows, but now they really need this building across the street from Penn Station. New York City uh, has previously unforeseen needs right after 9-11 for mega dollars, and Senators Schumer and now um, Senator Clinton, because Moynihan served till 2001, so we have two a little bit more junior senators. Uh, Senator Clinton is now the junior senator. Senator Schumer, just a few years in, is the senior senator. Um, And they're fighting just to keep Penn Station's needs on the table at all when New York has so many other needs after 9-11. Less than two months after 9-11, we also get a new mayor. Giuliani served the end of his term, and we now have Mike Bloomberg. And he went straight to the now president, George Bush, because Mike Bloomberg has a lot of money. He's been in the city a long time, kind of knows how things works, and he goes to the president, and we don't exactly know what he says, but we know that something kind of switches immediately at the Postal Service after Bloomberg reached out, because the project went from no-go, can't-do, to it's going ahead pretty much instantaneously. And in an article in Politico written in 2019 by Mark J. Dunkelman entitled, This is Why Your Holiday Travel is Awful, the link is in the episode notes. It's a great article, by the way. Uh, Dunkelman talks about the perverse incentives for developers to do nothing to let landmarks and neighborhoods decay until they're at such a state that government at whatever levels are willing to hand over a lot of money, right? And government handing over money meaning that means that the developers aren't uh, on the hook. Um, And so you have every vested interest, public and private, has its own agenda. But saving uh, 
best, or rather the worst for last, Dunkelman argues, uh, and I quote, that environmental regulations, established landmark standards, empowered community boards, created new review processes, and more, all in an effort to diffuse power to protect the public interest, end quote. And, right? And this means ever more delays of various kinds that tend to go on forever. This diffusion, all put in place with an intention to prevent another Robert Moses, or as I would call him, he who would not be maimed, or any private entity, um, from wielding the supreme, pub, supreme power ever again. Right? We don't want all power in the hands of one person or one railroad baron, for example. But on the other hand, now we have diffused power and the legal situation and funding mechanisms that are in place means that it can be difficult or nearly impossible or sometimes impossible to get anything done. And the years go on and the time drags and it looks like nothing's going to happen. So I'll have a little coffee here in my closet that's very messy. <laughs> and uh, we'll let that marinate with you for a moment. And the years took on. And we're now in 2004. And it's been a long time and it's been frustrating, and the public has had these articles appearing in the paper from time to time of the various plans, and this is the plan, and this is going to happen. And, you know, by 2004, nobody believes it. So uh, by 2004, Amtrak's pu pulled out as the main te tenant. It's itself at this point in dire financial straits. Uh, with New Jersey Transit and the Long Island Railroad saying that they would be the main tenants. Amtrak was, according to the plan at that point, to remain at Old Penn Station across the street. And if you can see that station in your mind with that old clickety-clack um, board that announced arrivals and departures, and it kind of looks like an underground, like, uh, unsexy is... is kind of a nice way to put it. <laughs> it 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 was a depressing kind of crappy space um dirty kind of dirty although I suspect it was cleaned every day but you know it was tired certainly not grandiose certainly nothing that said New York New York you've arrived or what a great place to spend time before you leave okay so Amtrak is out New Jersey Transit and then the LIRR are in by now, the Pennsylvania Station Redevelopment Corporation has been renamed the Moynihan Station Redevelopment Corporation because Senator Moynihan had recently passed away in 2003. And now we get a little bit more complicated because we have Mayor Bloomberg, right, succeeding Giuliani, and he's pushing to relocate Madison Square Garden, which sits top. Penn Station. It's taken up. It's taking up any chance of Penn Station having any light, or you know, really filling that space. Um, so he's pushing to relocate Madison Square Garden, or on the other hand, to situate the New York Jets football team at the western portion of the post office building. And the whole football stadium in Manhattan idea had been floating out 
around for quite a while. Giuliani uh, was a big proponent of this idea for a while. Spoiler alert, if you know where the New York Jets are playing, they're still playing in New Jersey. And as for the station project, um, in 2004, it was all go, go, go. This is really going to happen. And as we know, since the Jets are playing in New Jersey now, as we speak, it didn't go. And the clock keeps ticking, and we're two, almost three years later, in late 2006. And you get an idea of how miraculous it is that a project so in the public interest that everyone wants, where the financial package has been kind of almost put together so many times, the politicians are on board, that would actually give New York a gateway train station to the rest of the country that doesn't look like a dirty basement of an old unrenovated office tower. Even here, we see how seemingly impossible it is to accomplish any big infrastructure project in the city of New York uh, with the legal framework in place that we have in place. Uh, people with power anywhere can be petty and ego-driven, but in New York City, they take grudges uh, to <laughs> a ridiculous level, and they'll cut off their noses to spite their face. Cooperation doesn't come naturally. Meanwhile, Penn Station, as the years go by, is only getting more crowded and disgusting. And this is beginning to remind me of one of those European cathedrals that takes more than 100 years to build, except here we're not talking about the building taking so long as we are talking about getting a final agreement that includes a plan with financial uh, packages actually in place. And we're going to get even more complicated in a moment as I just stop to have a little bit more coffee because we're going uh, into the realm of the truly ridiculous. And you're going to find out now a little bit more about New York politics than you ever wanted to know. So in October of 2006, we have Sheldon Silver, whom you've probably never heard of unless you live in New York, and you're of a certain age because he's been out for a few years. Sheldon Silver was an extremely powerful man for a long time in the state of New York. He was the Speaker of the New York State Assembly, which was one of two houses of the state legislature. And he controlled that house with an iron grip, which made him one of the most important politicians perhaps in the country, but certainly along with the governor of the state of New York, one of the most important players. And he pulls his support from this, the uh, Moynihan Station project. Why? The word was that he didn't want the outgoing Republican governor of the state to get credit when a Democratic governor was already elected and due to come into office. Now, I'll tell you something in a moment that upends all of this, but Silva wants, you know, this, this new Democratic administration to get the credit and not outgoing Governor Pataki, who had been so supportive. 
But Silver doesn't give this as his reason. He told the press that he wanted an expanded project with the football stadium as part of the package. Now, the incoming governor, who was Elliot Spitzer, would later resign due to illicit activities and kind of an ugly um, stalking of him when there was suspicion that there was stuff going on involving prostitution. But anyway, he resigns. Silver himself later resigns after being speaker for about 20 years. He was found guilty on corruption charges. Well, you know, absolute power and all that. His conviction was then overturned, leading to a second trial. Another jury found him guilty, and he died in 2022 while serving his sentence. And one obituary pointed out how sad it was that Silver's achievements were really overshadowed, his achievements for progressive causes. Um, and they were overshadowed by his inability to move on as public sentiment turned against the control of state government by only three people, the governor and the leaders of the two houses of the legislature. In Politico, uh, Politico, Dunkelman also throws in another player, so to speak, who's also happy to create trouble for the project because um, what he wants, he wants, right? And so he doesn't really care if he delays things or... Um, messes up things because he, you know, he has his own agenda. And this is the owner of Madison Square Garden, where the New York Knicks play and the hockey uh, New York Rangers play. And he was in the early 2000s, uh, this owner, being wooed to move the garden one block west to the back side of the post office building. So in instead of having... Uh, a football stadium, you know, in the building, we would have a new Madison Square Garden. Now, this deal would, would have meant that the garden would have been moved for free. The owner of the garden would not have had to pay for it. It would have allowed developers to proceed not only with Moynihan Train Hall, but with a redevelopment of the entire Penn Station neighborhood of Midtown to bring it from a neighborhood of kind of old, grimy, not-so-tall buildings into the skyscraper age. And by 2006, the garden owner, one Jim Dolan, seemed to be on board. And this is a deal that's, I mean, super good for this guy and his financial interests. But, and you knew there'd be a but, right? Because we know when Moynihan Station actually comes to be. But in the next few years, as Dunkelman writes, Dolan became more and more demanding, right? He feels like he's the linchpin, and as linchpins sometimes do, they become more and more demanding, sometimes to a point where uh, they don't get what they want. Let's put it that way. So he becomes more and more demanding in ways that pisses off Amtrak, preservationists, and the governor. So once Elliot Spitzer, that, that Democratic governor, resigns, uh, we have a new governor, but there's really no one at this point with the power or gravitas to push the deals or approvals through, um, unlike this former he who will not be named Robert Moses had, right? So it's not only who is in positions of power, but kind of 
their force of personalities, you know, that really counts as well and what their priorities are. And time is just ticking, 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 and we seem never to move off the fence. In 2008, so we're 10 years into this episode, way more than 10 years into this whole thing. Remember, in 1992, we have the, the, the sparkle in the eye of this project. We had the New York Times reporting in 2008 uh, that the station project is all but dead. Uh, that it might only move forward with private dollars in exchange for moving Madison Square Garden. Uh, that because now we have this ambitious plan, the cost is now $3 billion, that tons of federal dollars will be needed. Um, even though we're saying, oh, we will only have private dollars, right? We're still going to need tons of federal money. And that these ton this tons of federal money is going to be, no surprise, more than the original cost of the project, right? It's exhausting just reading about, like, do something already. Make a decision, either it's going to happen or not. Oh, and there's lots of disagreement about having private partners at all and whether the public's interests will be served. And, of course, the public's interest is who are you talking to to determine what that even is. So we have potential private partners who are asking for development rights, right? These private partners are in business, and businesses uh, want to make profits. So they're asking for development rights in a 20-block area um, and for retail space, and quoting from the New York Times on March 6, 2008, and I quote, transportation agencies argued for larger and better central halls, ticketing booths and circulation, and the Bloomberg administration pushed the developers to design a distinctive train station that would rise above street level at Penn Station, but include a large block of retail space, end quote. And this all also rested on the assumption of yet more federal dollars. So this retail space could have been a giant mall, although that idea never got off the draw drawing board. Uh, that's basically not what people come into the city for, uh, as we see with some other kind of mall-type uh, center city projects uh, that predated this and one even in Midtown. Indeed, a year later, in 2009, uh, we have Senator Schumer kind of, for whatever reason, basically taking the project on. We have Mayor Bloomberg, by this point, unexcited and noncommittal, you know, and maybe not wanting to hang his reputation on something that never seems to quite move forward, and also perhaps wouldn't move forward as a grand plan, which is what he kind of wanted. Uh, we have already, by this point, you know, we've gone back and forth, back and forth. Um, it seems like gone from the current plans at that point is relocation of Madison Square Garden, the retail space, and the new office towers. It's all very grandiose and very expensive, and we don't know if we can get the money. And then we have another player with quite a bit of ego, and this person also has his own agenda. I'm starting to think that we sh the players should have been the moms in the playground rather than these politicians and other 
advocates and players of various types. Rather than getting into a room and get making an agreement, they just go year after year pushing their own agendas and being pissed off at somebody to the point of saying, you know, basically not letting the project go through. So our current ego that we're going to talk about is Governor then then Governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie. He killed the tunnel expansion in 2010. Yes, those years are clicking by. Who's president at this point? President Obama. Uh, as a way of Christie, Governor Christie, showing his Republican street cred, he wants to undermine Obama and Obama's uh, grandiose train plans. There was a whole high-speed rail train network proposed, and part of uh, this proposal is, is these tunnels under the river to better connect New York because the tunnels are getting to, like, the 100-year mark at this point, or maybe at that point they're over 100 years. I'd have to look that up. And the expanded tunnel capacity had long been, you know, a part of this project, for this train station or a piece of the puzzle, and it was a prerequisite, um, as we remember, for New Jersey Transit's participation in the project. So it would have really helped New Jersey Transit. But now, Chris Christie, despite having thousands and thousands of his constituents commuting every day into New York by train, he decides that he's going to stomp on it, which he does no-go to the tunnel expansion. So suddenly, we have both Amtrak out because of its financial distress, and New Jersey Transit is out. And spoiler alert, that tunnel expansion is in the works now, but it's facing its own dilemmas because it's a massive project that takes up a lot of money, and it's one that for decades people have been calling for. Okay. So, in 2010, that's a situation, but we also have good news. Federal money is on the table. Why? We had that great recession, and there, was a big, there were big stimulus bills that were passed with the great recession, and funding, designing, and breaking ground finally take place for part of the new train hall project. Okay, we're not certain that the whole thing's going to happen, but part of it is going to happen. Hooray! And that part was an underground concourse that would connect passengers to the Long Island Railroad and two new entrances to the Penn Station platforms from the post office building. Now, you may not think this is a great, this is like some big thing, but for local people, it's uh, a big deal. If you've ever had walked through those old tunnels, the expansion, the lighting, it, felt, it feels much safer now with the, the, the concourse that was built. All the while, while this is all going on, there is, I mean, things come and go and come back again. There's still talk of Madison Square Garden moving and the dire need for expanded tunnel capacity with three railroads, Amtrak, New Jersey Transit, and the LIRR, Long Island Railroad, all sharing tracks. By 2011, however, finally... Uh, we can have a funeral or a memorial service for the football stadium idea. That's really, really out. 
Uh, the Jets football team had chosen to go half seas on a stadium in New Jersey with the New York Giants, the other football team. So, yes, we have both New York football teams actually playing in New Jersey. So go to a sports podcast uh, to discuss that issue. By now, however, without a football stadium in the works, um, we are also without redeveloping the Penn Station neighborhood of Midtown. Uh, We're not going to move the garden, it looks like. We have a downsized project overall and a less ambitious uh, Moynihan Station in the works and one that doesn't really involve uh, any kind of real redo of the whole Penn Station. And the years continue to kind of go on. You know, as much as we have part of this happening, nothing else is happening very quickly. Mm. I have a good mix of coffees as I took the end of something and put it together with something else and uh, I did promise to tell you about my local coffee guy Alcoba is the name but he doesn't have a website he just sells this guy at local markets and it is good and it's good with mixing it with Zeke's I have it mixed today with Zeke's Sumatra and um Yeah, Sumatra, and I think maybe the very end of his red, white, and black. That's yeah, it's good. May also be good because I'm not that picky once I get to my general type of coffee. Okay, so early 2000, so not early, in 2014, again, I mean, people are reaching adulthood by the time, right? <laughs> by the time this is, you know, this is still being discussed. Um... Okay, the early phases of the project are nearing completion, and Senator Schumer is again looking for money, um, you know, to make at least something very nice happen, this time for an actual skylight that would be the pop factor of Moynihan Train Hall. And I think make this a project that, that Schumer believes would be worthy of, of uh, his mentor, Senator Moynihan. And, and, you know, a person whose energy got the ball rolling and someone who really believed in um, beautiful public projects and, and beautiful but also practical. So Schumer at this point in 2014 is short $200 million of the $700 million needed and the clock ticks and well into 2015 um, it's Schumer's pushing that's keeping this going, that's keeping this project even still on the table. Neither the governor of New York, um, by this point Andrew Cuomo, or then Governor uh, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, then a presidential candidate, were very enthusiastic, unless there were lots of federal dollars coming along with this. Basically, they don't want to pay for it, right? Schumer is working with the Federal Transit Administration. Remember, this is still the Obama years to find those dollars. And, and we're coming, you know, toward the end of the Obama administration. But something shifts by 20, uh, the end of 2015, by December of that year. And Cuomo decides he wants to get this project done. He's in his second term, and he's ambitious, and where is he going to go after being New York governor, right? He has his own big 
plans he's toying with, maybe a run for the presidency, and he wants a project that's going to make a big splash. And he is impatient. If you know anything about him, he's an impatient person, and here he's impatient with the developers. There are, of course, all sorts of alternatives being mentioned, still being floated about. Uh, one of these that I haven't mentioned that's being floated around at this point in 2015 is building a very large theater under underneath the existing Madison Square Garden. And New York City, remember, by this time is a very different reputation than it did in 1992. By this point, New York is a tourist mecca. And so this, this theater in a very central location could make a lot of money. Um, and there's been failed attempts by this point uh, to lure a community college to occupy part of the post office big building or to get CBS to put offices there. Um, and, but they're searching for a stable, a stable, very moneyed tenant to solidify the deal, you know, to occupy part of this post office building. And Cuomo thinks, you know, he can he can push this, and maybe he can. He he definitely is ambitious, and he's not afraid to speak his mind. And uh, he's somebody with an incentive, right, and an ego. So Cuomo at this point is talking a $3 billion total, much more obviously than the original $315 million, but way less than the $14 billion that was on the table for that super neighborhood redo that we were talking about a few years before. Uh, Cuomo also, I have to say, had the guts to cut ties with the first set of real estate developers who were already under contract. Um, he felt that, that that contract gave those developers a little too much wiggle room, and he wanted to see other plans. So he invites other others to show off plans. Cuomo wants to... Uh, wants to not necessarily have a theater in Madison Square Garden because what he'd really love is to make way for natural light into the existing Penn Station, right? He still wants a grandiose uh, Penn Station as part of this whole uh, pieces of the puzzle plan. And that would have been beautiful indeed, but now um, we have the Hulu Theater there and that Penn Station remains dark. At this point, the public, right, they're hardly paying attention. This is like the, the story of the boy who cried wolf too many times. Um, and nobody thinks it's going to happen, right? We have the concourse, that's built, that's nice, but that's not exactly a grand plan. Advocates were denigrating uh, Cuomo's plan as not sufficiently grand, uh, while the governor basically told them to not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. If they wanted a perfect station, a gorgeous homage to the entirety of the original Penn Station, they would probably end up with nothing. Uh, besides, Dolan, at this point, had already invested in renovating Madison Square Garden, and he wouldn't be willing to lose that investment. So there's not enough of a carrot on the table by this point for him to move. And the clock keeps ticking. And the incentives for Governor Cuomo, as time goes on, are ever higher. We have 2016. 
Cuomo decides to light a fire, so to speak, <laughs> under the project for a fast-track scale-down project with Amtrak and Long Island Railroad as partners. He's saying that retail businesses will be the tenants, and now the price tag will be a much lower $1.6 billion, right? This is almost half of the $3 billion, way less than the $14 billion. And I don't know what the present value in 2016 dollars was of three, uh, $315 million, but um, we're talking... I don't know, scale down if you're talking $1.6 billion in 2016 dollars. But he still wants his name attached to something ambitious. That is Cuomo. So by late 2016, Cuomo's putting his name and his energy behind this project. And he, and I suspect with Schumer in the background, they're getting all of the dollars in place. There's developers, there's air rights, and there's federal funding. And like a Rubik's Cube or whatever kind of puzzle, the pieces are finally put in place. Why? Because there's someone who's actually leading this and pushing this. And any project, whether it's a traffic signal or getting a sidewalk in or building a beautiful train station or a BRT network, whatever you are talking about, unless you have one person who's willing to take it on and who has the force of personality to play with the other players and make it happen, maybe sometimes even making threats, I don't know, because you could see Cuomo doing that, it's not going to happen, especially in a place like New York. So Cuomo, he really, uh, he really takes this on. And remember that we're talking about a change of president. Again, we're coming to the end of the Obama presidency in January of 2017. We have a no president, one with very different priorities than the previous one. And even though Donald Trump may have been a lifelong New Yorker, he was born in the city, lived in his entire life there, did a lot of projects in the city, but the city was a hugely against him politically. There's constant demonstrations as we go into the Trump presidency at the Trump Tower apartment uh, building. He never waxes poetic by this time about his hometown. And Trump basically abandons the city early in his, in his administration and makes his home destinations Florida and New Jersey. With Florida basically, I think, becoming his state of his residency. He abandons New York. He kind of, I think, politically has a who cares or screw New York kind of attitude, I'd say. Um, although that's not the biggest issue, obviously, in his presidency. So what's going to happen? Cuomo sends a letter to Trump. But basically what he shows, he sends, is a a public relations declaration, because at the same time that he sends this letter, he makes it public. And in the letter, Cuomo cites the deplorable and declining conditions at Penn Station, which by then had 600,000 commuters a day using this rail hub. On the line, 
was a real possibility of a precipitous reduction in Long Island Railroad service, a looming disaster for then ambitious governor. And from a quote in Newsday, the major Long Island newspaper, on May 22nd, 2017, I'm sorry, so this is five months, uh, about four or five months into the Trump presidency, in this letter, Cuomo says, and I quote, I request that the federal government treat this as an emergency situation and provide funding for the short-term pen construction and transportation alternatives and facilitation of a long-term resolution for Penn Station, Cuomo wrote in his letter to Trump. And I continue with the letter, quote, while this is not a hurricane or flood, it will affect as many people and businesses with dire consequences. Like a natural disaster, we didn't create it, but our public offices require we address it. End quote. And elsewhere in the letter, and I quote, we could build a state-of-the-art, secure, world-class transportation hub. This would fit with your proposal for a $1 trillion plan for federal infrastructure investments to rebuild America. And I urge you to consider this critical request as you and Congress begin a dialogue on federal budget priorities, Cuomo wrote, end quote. Now, we all know that that big infrastructure deal and those infrastructure weeks that we saw in the Trump administration didn't happen, but Cuomo is drawing a line in the sand. He's making a very public declaration. So one month later, in June of 2017, that West Concourse opened, and Schumer and Cuomo are present together at that point. They're both Democrats, and they're celebrating together. And we have now a clean, with clear directional signs, um, concourse, the transformation for commuters and travelers accustomed to diginess uh, for anything related to Amtrak and the LIRR. For New York, this is kind of staggering. One practically needs sunglasses that the chrome is so gleaming. Uh, but the very next day, this is June of 2017, the very next day, there's reports of fighting and threats between Amtrak and the Long Island Railroad due to construction-related service disruptions uh, for Long Island Railroad commuters. There's also not all smiles and cooperation. Uh, Cuomo is stepping in with suggestions, and, and he's getting support from Long Island state legislators. He doesn't want this important segment of his, his constituency unhappy. The Long Island uh, population are a very important piece of the puzzle for him. He doesn't want them unhappy, and he doesn't want... Um, a tarnished Long Island Railroad or some kind of implosion uh, for the railroad. He knows this would not be good for his reputation. And I'm going to take another sip of coffee here and turn off my heater. It's getting very warm in, in the closet. Okay, in a small space with so much stuff, it doesn't take much to eat it up. Okay, so ticking, ticking, ticking. The time is going. Uh, Cuomo is working, working, working. I suspect Schumer, his ally, is also working. We have a name behind this, but 
uh, there's all these things that are happening to New York, right? Like we have 9-11, we have Hurricane Sandy, and then we have the beginning of COVID. And quickly, we have the height of COVID in the spring and summer of 2020. Just after New York City uh, experiences those days of constant sirens, uh, excuse me, sirens, those blasting of ambulances throughout the city of New York, as we have over 2,000 people in New York dying every single day, huh, and people, you know, going out and shouting or, you know, clanging their pots, right, at a certain hour of the early evening to celebrate their essential workers, remember that? Um, Great news arrives at the post office building. Facebook signed on. This is during COVID, summer of 2020. Facebook signed on the dotted line to lease all of the office space at the general post office building. Uh, We're not going to have Madison Square Garden moving. We're not going to have this football stadium or shopping mall, but we're going to have glitzy offices. This actually added to the presence of Google and Amazon in the neighborhood around the station. For office workers using public transportation, this meant excellent access from Long Island, from parts of New Jersey, and much of Brooklyn, the Bronx, the Upper West Side, and much of downtown. And the construction of Moynihan Train Hall is on. Finally, about 30 years after Senator Moynihan got going, the opening ceremony happens mid-COVID on New Year's Eve. December 31st, 2020, it's a small but happy socially distanced and masked celebration due to the determination of a few individuals. And we have, ta-da, a real station, train hall, Uh, And with COVID, there's only a few invited guests, and they're all wearing masks. And I have some quotes, but I'm, in the interest of time, going to just quote a little bit. Uh, From Senator Schumer, he says, after decades of work, today we pop the New New Year's cork early to celebrate the opening of the gorgeous Moynihan Train Hall. And I continue down. I'm skipping a lot. Senator Moynihan recognized this as a unique opportunity to both correct a historic mistake, the tragic demolition a half century ago of McKim, Mead, and White's original Penn Station, Pennsylvania Station, and to create a beautiful new user-friendly public space that New Yorkers and all Americans can once again enjoy and be proud of. Uh, Schumer went on to recognize the efforts of Cuomo, Governor Cuomo, and private sector construction and development projects. Uh, The Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, which was another uh, player, their executive director, Rick Cotton, said, um, with the magnificent architectural conversion of the historic Farley Post Office into a 21st century train station, Moynihan Train Hall will become a New York icon and a destination in itself. And finally, retired Skidmore Owings and Merrill design partner Roger Duffy said, "Um, One of the most remarkable things about this project is the way that it transforms an underutilized and underappreciated building into a new inviting front door for this city. We've designed a place that evokes the majesty of the original Penn Station. 
All while we're serving, all while serving as a practical solution to the issues that commuters in, to, and from New York have endured for too long. By connecting to our architectural past through the adoptive reuse of the Farley Post Office building, we are breathing new life into New York and, dis- and recreating an experience no one has had here in decades. End quote. And what does this train hall look like? It's big, with that ceiling of glass giving an expanse of space and brightness, placing you in the city because you see those old... Mi- buildings more than you see the sky. You see large electronic signs, some of uh, which uh, seem to welcome you to New York one moment and advertise uh, the next. There's an industrial look, but it's super clean with lots of gray under the skylight on the upper walls uh, that frame the bottom of the skylight. Uh, We have the main boarding concourse, and I quote from Structure Magazine, Located in Farley's former mail sorting room, the 150 by 200 foot square space is column free due to three existing steel roof trusses invisible a century ago that were uncovered and reinforced to become a significant focal point of the design. Their latticed configuration and riveted connections are reminiscent of framing in the old Penn Station and add delicacy of detail and a sense of lightness despite the large scale, end quote. Um, So those trusses make possible for the eye being immediately lifted up toward the curved skylight, which is 92 feet at its highest uh, point above the open concord. Concourse, And the view we see through that skylight is less movie-worthy and more like you would see from a typical uh, Manhattan apartment or office, as if to say you've arrived in the real city. Uh, The gray inside is well-matched with the outside scene beyond the skylight with similar hues and colors. And for all you engineering and architecture nerds, I would look at that structure magazine. It's in the episode notes, and it talks a lot about the um, the details of the materials and the supports. It's a very functional space um, that we've created that's transformed this uh, mail sorting room into a train station. Um, we have kiosks for coffee, bagels, Amtrak and uh, LIRR info and tickets. We have um, a Love Pop card store off to the side. Um, there's no seating, and that's become an issue. I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, one hint, you know, from somebody who's used the station quite a few times, those H&H bagels are really good, but I'd go maybe somewhere else for coffee. That's just me. But, you know, I, I also didn't love the coffee selection there. There's a Zaro's, which has nice black and whites. Those are large cookies with icing. But you do have to go to Penn Station, the 7th Avenue end of Penn Station for that, um, right near where the escalator comes down. I would definitely go to the Love Pop store, which is in Moynihan Trains uh, Hall. I discovered them at South Station in Boston, and now they're in quite a few places. Uh, the cards are way too expensive, but they are, oh my God, they're so beautiful. I'm, I love them. <laughs> okay. So there's no clickety-clack of the old train board that was in Payne Station. We have digital signs, and they are a little out of the way, I will say that. So 
if you're going someplace frequently, you kind of get to know where to stand and which side to pay attention to. Um, so that's one of the worst thing of the old Penn Station experience that remains, but... Um, and the, the tracks aren't announced for Amtrak trains until 10 minutes before departure. So, you know, those are some... Lah. Okay. But the lack of seating in the concourse. It gives a very clean look to the space, and you don't have people hanging around. I mean, that was a problem with seating, that you had a lot of homeless people, and that kind of put off people from using Amtrak. So what you have are a lot of people who are either standing up or sitting on their luggage or on the floor. Um, the seating area you do have is lovely. It's kind of uh, Art Deco meets Shaker. It's only there for ticketed passengers. Um, but enough people were ticked off that by a year after the train hall opened, we have New York City politicians pushing for legislation. I'm not sure why a law is needed, but that's where they're going to install benches in the train hall. And last, the art and the clock. Uh, much has been written about, noted about the artwork, but you're never going to notice unless you know where it is and you're looking up at just the right time. It's not, it's not kind of central to the train hall. Um, they're either located hanging from or like located on the ceiling. You're never going to notice them if you're in the crunch of commuters. Um, again, unless you know where and when to look up. And I would go at a less crowded time. More noticeable in terms of public art, though it's not necessarily thought of this way, are the ads or public promotions on those large screens. They really inform your experience of the space in terms of color and character. As for that clock, it's very noticeable and noteworthy. Um... I have to say, sadly, in my opinion, it's way too functional a look um, because it's so gray and it echoes all those gray features. It doesn't pop, in my opinion. It's not like that clock in Grand Central. It's a little too Art Deco meets Shaker, you know, needs a little more something. But that's just me. Um... You do notice it because it's situated in a central place, um, but it's, it's missing that glam, that pop, that whatever. I've said too much. Okay. But a lot of thought went into it, and we're going to talk about that now, not about the clock, but we're going to go to our, our, um, our last moment in equity, and then we're going to talk about a, a tragedy that, that's associated with um, Moynihan Train Hall. Uh, which I feel like we can't really talk about the history mm -hmm. of the train hall without talking about this tragedy. But first, our moment in equity. Uh, we have quotes from an op-ed that Cortland Malloy wrote in the Washington Post in 2022. It sort of echoes... Um, what Moynihan, the Moynihan quotes in our first episode. He writes about a study that showed that, and I quote, the percentage of black adults ages 25 and over with at least a bachelor's degree is highly predictive of longer life. End quote. Another predictor he, he finds in the study's black business ownership. And these two factors can mean significant 
differences in lifespans uh, from lows in the in 160s to highs in the 90s. And getting back to uh, Moynihan's point about family structure, I'll quote from Cortland Malloy, who seems to echo uh, Moynihan's thoughts decades earlier when he's talking about this study. And I quote, Black fathers matter in the home. Areas that have dads living in households with their kids tend to be among the more prosperous households. The more fathers living with their children means longer life for the children, end quote. So Moynihan, although he was sometimes put down um, for his findings and people misconstrued his findings, the core of what he was saying um, is echoed decades later by Cortland Malloy, um, himself an African-American columnist. And now to the tragedy associated with Moynihan Train Hall. Uh, There was a very avoidable death, uh, a death by suicide. We have an unsung hero, Michael Joseph Evans, who, like many government employees, works hard in ways that the public never sees, but which is necessary uh, for making infrastructure happen and for making it function well. His life and his death cause us to pause because here was a young man at the pinnacle of achievement doing his job and crumbling under what he perceived was insurmountable pressure. I relied a lot on an excellent piece, in, and I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but yes, the New York Post from January of 2021. Uh, this first article in the Post came about Evans, came out in the days following the opening of Moynihan Train Hall. Uh, after Isabel uh, Vincent, a Post reporter, broke the story, others, including the New York Times, followed. And I have to say, it's, it's difficult reading a New York Post article online because there's so much clickbait, and I have to admit, I did, you know... I did get distracted with pieces about Meghan Markle and the royal family, or there were articles about Andy McDowell going gray. She does look fabulous, by the way. Uh, but getting back to uh, Michael Joseph Evans, he was born in 1980 in Cali, Colombia, and like Moynihan himself, his family moved when he was an infant to a very different place. Evans grew up in Dallas in a devout Catholic family. He attended uh, elite Catholic schools. He went to the posh boarding school where the dead movie The Dead Poet Society was filmed, St. Andrew's School in Middletown, Delaware. And this was a f significant financial sacrifice for his parents. They were not wealthy. He went on to college at Swarthmore, but he transferred to the University of Sydney in Australia. And we'll go on to his personal life that may explain this, uh, this transfer to a place far from home. He then, like Moynihan, he obtains a graduate degree in international rel 
relations for Evans at Oxford. So again, he is pretty far from home. At Oxford, he met an American guy at school who became his lifelong partner. A fact that it seems from uh, media reports that he he never disclosed to his family. Or perhaps uh, a fact that his parents did know about but they didn't like. It's unclear. One thing is clear is that the family did not include their uh, dead son's partner in their local obituary, and obviously that's quite the omission. And I'm going to resist here the urge to psychoanalyze something I'm not trained to do, but we all do anyway. Uh, We have a young man, Mr. Evans, who's in a difficult position already in his personal life, obviously, and then... His professional life turns into no picnic. Uh, Evans has been described as confident, but also as a perfectionist. He's accustomed to hiding parts of himself, which can make it hard to see when he's in trouble, right? He's accustomed to uh, putting on different faces and not showing all of himself all the time, it looks like. So I did psychoanalyze. So there. After graduate school in Oxford, Evans and his partner moved to New York, and before working on the post office transformation, Evans had a series of temp jobs, and he used some of his free time during this period to explore the city on his bike. And I have to say, if his life had turned out differently, one could imagine a biopic with a montage of him riding his bike past well-known places in the city. After two years after arriving in New York in 2007, 2007, he gets a job, and I quote from the New York Post article, uh, in state government in the administration of Governor David Patterson, becoming special assistant for infrastructure and economic development. Friends say he was passionate about public works and creating ways to make cities more livable. And in his spare time, poured over books by journalists like Jane, uh, journalists Jane Jacobs and Robert Caro, end quote. I don't know if Jane Jacobs was a journalist. She was more of an advocate, I would think. But anyway, so this is a guy with a romantic connection, but a realistic look at city neighborhoods and infrastructure. By the time he's 31, he's deputy director of the Moynihan Station Development Corps, and he became president of the public-private consortium to build the station in 2013. He's now only 33, and he goes on to spend the rest of his career leading and intimately involved in the funding, designing, uh, which never stopped, and building of Moynihan Train Hall. Everyone knows that some people can tolerate a whole lot more work pressure than others. Here we have an ambitious governor uh, who's in the picture who wants this beautiful station on time and on budget. And we have Mr. Evans, a young public servant, trying very, very hard for years, for his whole career, to make sure that this grand project will be completed. A multi-million dollar, uh, becoming billion dollar project that involves the herding of powerful cats, business people, rail executives, public officials, staff of various agencies. And the New York Times pointed out that Evans confronted at the start of his many years of working on this, the reality 
of what existed. And I quote, The rest of the building's interior had fallen into disrepair. There was no working bathroom, dark rings from water damage stained the ceilings, a thick layer of grime coated every, nearly every surface. But where most saw a dump, Mr. Evans saw possibility. Without a budget to maintain the building's historical integrity, Mr. Evans rented out the space for flashy events like film shoots and shows during New York Fashion Week, raking in millions of dollars, end quote. The New York Times explained Evans', Evans devotion to the project. As a project manager, he fought to preserve original steel trusses, brought in installations from world-renowned artists, traveled to a quarry in Tennessee to choose the best marble, and paid his own way to Germany to personally inspect the glass that was manufactured for the large atrium. And further down, quote, Mr. Evans made a pilgrimage to the ancient Roman baths of Caracalla, which influenced the design for the original Penn Station to draw inspiration. He insisted on using marble from the same quarry that supplied Grand Central Terminal, obsessed over how much light should be refracted, refracted through the glass skylight, and hand-selected every shade of gray paint used, end quote. Now, Evans's partner said that he didn't have a history of mental illness, but friends did mention to reporters the cognitive dissonance of separating his life in New York from his relationship with his family. As time went on, he stopped riding his bike and he spent weekends at the construction site or working on his phone. So he's now working like seven days a week. And I quote from the New York Post, uh, after this, his partner, and I quote, said that delays and potential cost overruns dominated the last two weeks of his life, even as the couple took a ski vacation in Austria to celebrate Evans's birthday shortly before his death. The couple scrambled to return to New York after many countries went into coronavirus lockdown. He was constantly worried that he was going to be scapegoated, he, the partner said. We constantly talked about how to manage it, end quote. And elsewhere in the Post article uh, talked about rushing and uncertainty with only a year or so left before the deadline for completion. Another quote, I quote, uh, the Art Deco clock, which is suspended from the center of the 255,000 square foot waiting area for Amtrak and the Long Island Railroad was not part of the original renderings for the station. Evans was forced to scramble when officials demanded a centerpiece clock with less than a year to go before the monumental project's scheduled completion date, his partner said. In the last weeks of his life, Evans tortured himself over material delays, stone from Italy, switches for the building's fiber optic network, light fixture, fixtures, LED screens, and clock prog progress, according to a yeah, according to a hand-scrawled note found on his desk a day before his March 17 suicide. End quote. Evans even wrote an apology before he took his own life. An apology. He's working seven days a week. He's herding cats. He's spending his own money. He's trying to raise private money. And he's apologizing. 
and this, it's so sad. Uh, in his apology, he writes, I have tried to make Moynihan beautiful and get done ahead of schedule, he wrote in an undated, hand-scrawled note found addressed to one of his work colleagues in his room shortly after, I'm sorry, after his suicide, I had said before his suicide, after his suicide, and I'll continue to quote, but I got over my skis. I have been grappling with how to fix, but I cannot. I am sorry I failed you and Eric and the governor's team. Try to forgive me someday if you can, end quote. I, I can't help crying when I read this. Uh, Cuomo actually talked about Evans uh, at the opening. Um, and he said at, at the opening that Evans was really put his heart and soul into this project. As a memorial to their fallen leader, uh, it's reported in the Post, around 30, uh, 30 of his colleagues, uh, and I quote, gathered inside the hall over the summer of 2020, so this is in my words, before, before the station opens when, right, it's being finished, and I go back to the quote, congregating around a single unfinished column. Wedged inside were Mr. Evans's hard hat and steel-toed work boots, still covered in white dust. One by one, they added personal mementos, sentimental photographs, paper renderings of the building, a medallion from the Federal Department of Transportation, end quote. And there is a plaque on a marble pillar in Moynihan Train Hall that reads, in memory of Michael Joseph Evans, president of Moynihan Station Development Corps, leader, visionary, friend. End quote. I mean, you just want to cry. What a sad story. And there's an epilogue. There's an epilogue because the story uh, of the train hole is not, and, and Penn Station, they're not done. A very apt quote from Daniel Patrick Moynihan, and I would say an equity quote, from his book, The Politics of a Guaranteed Income, which he wrote in 1973. No one is in innocent after the experience of governing, but not everyone is guilty. He was a realist, Moynihan. He knew the sausage-making, the deal-making, the pushing, the depressing ego stuff that goes on with politics, and yet he didn't give up. And he didn't let the impossible be the enemy of the good. He pushed even with the compromises. So where does everything now stand? Here we are in 2023. Where does everything now stand? Um, <sighs> talks are ongoing stoked by the current New York City Mayor Eric Adams about moving the Madison Square Garden a couple of blocks and building a circular glass front and high ceiling Penn Station with tons of light, a gleaming station for commuters and visitors with the realization of dreams uh, of New Yorkers worthy of their city to bring all this light into Penn Station. Is this going to happen? We don't know. Moynihan's train hall is still seen as the tip of the iceberg. Um, with more tunnel capacity and admit 
additional tracks at Penn Station for the LIRR, Metro North, for access to Moynihan and Penn Station on the west side, Grand Central on the east side, uh, as well as, and one can run out of breath with so many priorities, finished renovations to redo Penn Station. You can see where there's so much room for haggling, argument, negotiation, huge stacks of money needed. The city, two states, the federal government, and then, depending on the party in power, being more or less friendly to New York City, getting a huge chunk of money, plus agency staffs with their own egos from a few agencies at the city, state, and federal levels, adding in private developers and others, citizen groups, preservationists, commuters, urbanists, blah, blah, blah. The herding of all these cats complicated, nearly impossible. So we don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to end this with uh, another quote from Dunkelman in his political article, having next to the last word. In a dynamic where so many players can exercise a veto, it's nearly impossible to move a project forward. No one today has the leverage to do what seems to be best for New York as a whole, and ultimately, government is rendered incompetent. End quote. And yet, even with all this impossibility, Moynihan Train Hall, the government and public servants, servants came through. They worked hard. They pushed many of them over many years with their different agendas, and they kept the dream alive even when it seemed impossible. And I have to say, maybe that's why. I cried the first time I walked into the train hall, and I have to say tears are coming to my eyes because I remember that. I took tons of pictures that day as I waited to greet my daughter as she arrived in New York by train because it's truly astounding what's there, even though it doesn't look like the grandest, most opulent train hall. It's a miracle that it exists. So thank you so much for listening today. Again, I was your host, Cheryl Gross-Glazer. Can't even pronounce my own name. Thank you from us at Altered Mobility. It's been a pleasure. Leave your thoughts on social media. Have a wonderful couple of weeks. If you have insomnia, I hope you fell asleep to this episode. If not, I hope you enjoyed it. And that is where I will leave you today.
Oh! <laughs>